Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we are joined by Dr. Manisha Gelman to talk about her new book that she edited, Education Behind the Wall, Why and How We Teach College in Prison. Welcome to the show, Manisha. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for being here. I am so glad that we get to talk about this book, and I'm delighted that you've come back on the show. Before we dive into this new book of yours, um, will you please tell us about yourself? Sure. I'm an associate professor of political science at Emerson College in the Marlboro Institute for Liberal Arts and Interdisciplinary Studies, and I teach classes on human rights and democratization, both in the United States and uh, predominantly in Latin America, but around the world. And I'm also the founder and director of the Emerson Prison Initiative, which is the, the basis for the book that we'll talk about. I like to ask guests how they found their field. Um, I know a lot of our listeners are curious about how people get their jobs and how they find their passion and calling in higher ed. Do you recall what led you on this path? There's multiple answers to that question. So I think from a very young age, I really felt a burning sense of injustice about the world. I was a a kid who was obsessed with fairness and really felt frustrated at inequality that I saw around me, even as as an elementary school age kid. So eight, nine, 10, seeing people, you know, panhandling on the street and trying to understand, well, like, why, why don't they have enough to eat? Why don't they have a place to live? And asking those sorts of questions. And as I moved through high school, I continued to really feel a sense of of anger that the world was so unfair and kept thinking that there must be some adults behind the curtain, as in The Wizard of Oz, who were controlling things. And maybe they just made a mistake, but there must be a way to get to a system of fairness. So I kept protesting and intervening and writing letters and trying to find you know, a, a way to push that fairness agenda forward. And, and I think just as a young adult, I realized that people like me are the ones that make the world, you know, we make the policies of the world. And so I can't wait for other people to do the kind of change that I want to see, but it really has to start with, with each of us. So that, that was the philosophical catapult into the kind of work that I do. Um, and I'm happy to talk about, you know, the specific field as well, if you like. Yes, please. So I, um, as I say, mentioned in the book's introduction, I had a parent incarcerated when I was finishing high school, going into my freshman year of college. And it was pretty devastating for my family and really made the carceral system a focus of that, that anger and dissatisfaction that I was describing before. And I got to Bard College as an undergraduate right at the time that the Bard pr- Prison Initiative was being launched by a fellow student. And it was just a perfect channel for me to uh, address the the emotions and the thoughts and the feelings that I was having about my own family members' incarceration. And so I started as a volunteer in that program in the uh, early 2000s 
and really for the last 20 years has been uh, working as a volunteer in various sorts of educational programs in prisons through New York and California and now Massachusetts. And the work in Massachusetts really came to fruition when I got this tenure track job at Emerson and was able to have an institutional platform to build a new program from scratch. Can you describe for listeners who may not have heard our previous episode on this topic, what that program is that Emerson has? The Emerson Prison Initiative, which I founded in 2017, is a bachelor's degree pathway program that operates right now at two state prisons in Massachusetts. And we bring a college curriculum that is as identical and as rigorous as possible uh, from the traditional Boston campus to the prison, which is also the um, the prisons are accredited campuses of Emerson College, or I should say uh, MCI Concord and soon to be MCI Norfolk are uh, accredited campuses, which means we're allowed to grant Emerson College degrees to people who study and take all of the required classes and meet all of the graduation requirements with us there. So we have faculty who go in from the outside in person to teach their classes, to teach their expertise. Students do a a full-time course load, fall semester, spring semester, summer semester, and over the course of four to five years, complete the requirements for a bachelor's degree from Emerson. There's a rigorous application process, and the group is taken as a cohort, if I understand it correctly. They do all four years together, and then you admit for a second cohort, which will do all four years together. Correct. We've now started staggering it. So our second cohort was actually admitted before the first cohort graduated, and we're in the process of running admissions for a third cohort this week, as a matter of fact. Uh, And the third cohort will join while their previous cohort is about halfway through the degree. So we're moving towards an annual admissions model, where just like in a regular college, you would have people at various levels uh, taking some classes together, some classes apart. But they they are all working towards one degree, which is a a bachelor's a bachelor of arts in media literature and culture which is an interdisciplinary degree that draws on the strengths of emerson college across the liberal arts uh, the visual media arts and our writing literature and publishing department so we use a cohort model which allows it to be a, a viable degree pathway for a small small number of students but we are we're trying to work towards integrating cohorts so that there can be learning from students who've been taking classes for a long time doing more mentoring with uh, with newer students just like you would have on a traditional campus and part of why you set it up the way you did is the logistical considerations for having college in prison that are very different than the logistical considerations for having it on a larger campus, including classroom size and the process of even delivering materials to the prison and having them screened in time for class to begin. Do you want to give listeners an idea of what it takes to scaffold this? Absolutely. And but first, I realized I didn't fully address the admissions question. So what it, what it means to run admissions for our program is that we do an open call for applications. And we have an application form that is, you know, basic information about applicants, and then an essay where we ask, stu- we ask applicants to respond to one of three 
options of essay prompts and give them a chance to, in their own time, write an essay response back to us, which is then read by a panel. Uh, it, this this year, it's we have six faculty readers who evaluate the essays, and then we select a subset of applicants to do in-person interviews at the prison with, and then from that interviewed pool, we then offer admission to uh, 20 students per cohort is our, our general number. So it's a very rigorous admissions process. We know that we disappoint people every year that we turn down, but we always encourage them to continue studying and doing uh, doing learning on their own and to reapply. So we try to make it clear that people you know, are welcome to reapply with us in the future. In terms of what it means to actually run the program in prison, I'd say the biggest factor in our success is being highly organized front loaders. So faculty on college campuses around the world will often, you know, wake up in the morning, think, oh, right, I have to prepare for class. They'll grab some books. They might grab some slides. They might be like, oh, I just read this uh, article online. I want to bring that article in. So let me grab that article. Or, oh, I just saw this clip on the news yesterday. I'm going to show that clip at the opening of class. We don't have the luxury of any sort of last minute preparation for our classes. So our faculty submit their syllabi months in advance. We order the books and all of the um, printed materials for classes months in advance. And those materials go through, you know, the security process for them to enter the prison and are distributed. And so and our our PowerPoint slides and any films that we want to show have to be screened well, well, well in advance of the semester starting. So by the time the faculty comes into the classroom, we're able to integrate current events and other sort of immediate happenings verbally, but we're very limited in being able to do that with any sort of technology or additional uh, additional paperwork. And this is a constraint that I, I think that programs across the United States face just by the nature of, of working in a prison and having to also abide by all of the Department of Correction uh, public safety requirements that are put in place. So it does take a tremendous amount of organization and, and pre-planning to run a program successfully. But when we're able to do that, it's really rewarding for students and faculty alike. And the faculty who participate in this, that doesn't get to be their full-time job, if I understand that correctly. They do this work in addition to their teaching load on campus? Right. So every college and prison program has a different arrangement within their institution. Um, Emerson Prison Initiative predominantly has courses taught by Emerson College faculty. So the vast majority of our faculty are teaching at Emerson where the course is not part of their standard course load. We pay a stipend and it's considered volunteer work on top of course load, which means that it can be really hard for junior faculty or tenure track faculty or people who uh, just have a lot of competing obligations in their lives to take it on. Uh, we, We have a memorandum of understanding with Clark University for their faculty to teach for our program. And Clark University does actually count teaching for the Emerson Prison Initiative as course load. So faculty are able to uh, sign up to teach for us and it's considered part of uh, their their standard workload. So there's a, there's a lot of different models across the U.S. and how programs address faculty compensation. And I think there's, you know, there's pluses and minuses to each. But for, for us, it absolutely is an additional, it's an additional workload on top of someone's standard workload as a professor. The book is called Education Behind the Wall, How and Why We Teach in Prison, and it really engages three philosophical and practical questions in this field, which are why we teach, how we teach, and who we teach. Can you take us behind the framework of this book and what led to it? 
when I was doing orientations for faculty getting ready to go in to teach for us for the first time, many of them would say, well, what can I read <laughs> to prepare, right? Like good, like good college professors, we want to read the things in our field before we step into it. And there are a handful of, of excellent volumes out there. Rebecca Ginsburg has an edited volume uh, that speaks to teaching college and prison. And there's, there's some other ones as well. But but there, there, it is still a relatively small field of literature. And so I really wanted to help create a book that I could hand to faculty getting ready to go in to teach, to say, here are some thoughts and reflections on the why and how of the work, and also to provide more of a portrait of who it is that we're teaching. So to, just to take them each in turn, why do we teach college in prison? Many of us as educators felt drawn to our craft because we see education as liberatory, we see it as transformative, we see it as a potent tool to address some of the problems of the world. Folks at that are teaching in uh, colleges where they are regularly working with students from historically and contemporarily marginalized backgrounds may feel like they're able to make their interventions really fully in their traditional college campuses. And I have I have colleagues, for example, who teach at the community college level who who feel that sometimes very strongly that their their community college base is the place where they're able to do that work. I think for some of us, specifically at uh, private and predominantly white and predominantly privileged institutions, we don't feel a full connection between the potent that the some of the the liberatory possibility of education and uh, and what we're doing in our in our day to day lives, and so bringing bringing our craft behind the wall, bringing access to college behind prison walls to people who have had a, had that kind of educational privilege routinely denied to them, uh, satisfies that feeling that access to education really should be available to everyone, and that we are part of making it so. The how we teach in prison, I, I think is itself multi-parted because there's a chapter by my my colleague, Kara Moyer-Duncan, who's the assistant director for the Emerson Prison Initiative, which is very nuts and bolts. Like here is what it takes logistically to make this program happen inside. And then there's also, there are also a handful of essays that address the how through the lens of power. And I think that uh, the Wendy Walters and Kim McLaren chapter in the book that look at the, the uh, teaching of appreciation of poetry or literature as something that is available and useful for everyone, regardless of circumstance, really looks at the power dynamics inherent in liberal arts access and and why these tools are useful no matter the positionality of people. So the, the how is a both logistical and also a philosophical uh, approach to how we handle cl- things like classroom dynamics. And the, the teaching is also recognizing that college is often an endpoint in people's education, that there's a long uh, history of pre-K through 12 education that precedes it. And so, you know, one, one very moving chapter in the book is by a former Boston Public 
school teacher who talks about some of the similarities in teaching in prison with teaching in the Boston public school system. You know, the floor linoleum is the same, the lack of resources in terms of material things that are needed to make a classroom function are the same the uh, histories of trauma and complicated family circumstances that students are carrying with them into the classroom can be can be similar. So the the book tries to address as holistically as possible this question of why and how we teach college and prison with a focus on and we need to do it. <laughs> it's hard, it's complicated, it challenges us, it challenges the students and it is part of making the world a place that we want to be where everybody has access to the life of the mind. At the end of the book, you talk about how this work brings up very hard questions, not just how to provide college in very adverse circumstances, but grappling with ethical issues where you're thinking about things like your quote is, you're not trying to make it prettier or more justifiable, but rather re-envisioning how society privilege is meted out. What is it like for the professors who do this work to be sitting in these ethical dilemmas? It is a complicated space to sit. And that particular passage is pointing towards a conflict that many of us who who teach college and prison feel, which is for people who identify as abolitionists, meaning they, you know, they don't think that the prison system should exist in its current form, some folks will look to programs like college and prison programs to say, well, you're putting lipstick on the pig, you're making a horrible institution look a little bit better because now these prisons can say that they're offering college. And, and then on the other side, folks who don't think that college should be made available to people who have been convicted of crimes and and sentenced to serve time point to us and say, well, you're providing something that they don't deserve. So people who teach in prison, I I think, often feel caught between these, these different perceptions of what we do. And I really try to make it clear in that conclusion that we recognize those conflicts and we we understand as much as possible the arguments on both sides but as educators and as people with access to these institutional resources to make college available we're we're going to continue to bring college to people who who have been most marginalized from it and so we do that oftentimes sharing a belief that the current criminal legal system is not functioning in a way that is equitable or fair, but that it is not our role to uh, to reinvent what that system is as an institution. We might do that as individuals, but that's not what we're doing institutionally. Institutionally, what we're able to do is bring this parallel college experience from the traditional campus behind the wall. And for, you know, for folks on the other side that say, well, I, you know, I had to take out a second mortgage to send my kid through college. Why should, you know, why should someone incarcerated have access? We try to engage, and I don't do this directly in the book, but in, since its publication, I've had a lot of fruitful conversations about this, that fundamentally our conception of public safety 
can be expanded to include access to education as something that serves that mission. We know from the recidivism statistics that when people have access to higher education in prison, they tend to not go back. Uh, and they tend to, no, to not go back because they're able to come out and get jobs that keep them out of prison. So for, you know, for folks who feel that concern that what we're doing is really extending privilege to people that don't quote unquote deserve it, I, I often I try to push back to say w- the work that we're doing makes society a safer and a better place for everyone by addressing some of the structural issues of marginalization that led people to prison in the first place. There's also a complicated notion that education is a privilege. Yes, I I teach human rights and I teach the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a document of interest that students analyze. And we focus a lot on Article 26, the right to education and the fact that it does not name college as part of that right. At the same time, uh, what we see, at least in the United States, is that the college degree has really become the the new high school diploma. And I say that a, a bit cheekily, but but I mean it in that we see that in order to to uh, in many cases make a living wage that allows people uh, a dignified life, we do have to have some degree of credentialization. And for folks with criminal histories not having that credentialization essentially closes door after door after door to above ground employment. So college itself has not been accepted universally as something that is a human right, but access to education in general is enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I think when we look at the kinds of opportunities that that college opens for people, professionally, that we we might need to rethink that to include college as part of the education that it should be universally guaranteed. And the I talked to students about the fact that the Universal Declaration, uh, like, like any document, can be read statically or it can be read dynamically. You know, the, the right to the internet is not enshrined in that document because at the time it was created in 1948, <laughs> the internet didn't exist. So when we read it dynamically, we can think, okay, but the right to accurate information in 2023 might include the right to access the internet. So how can we look at the right to education as something that maybe needs to dynamically evolve in its definition and and perhaps be included in some ways to, to expand co- and include college? And lose the language of privilege. Right, because it co- college is a privilege in, in the ways that we can say, you know, living in a fancy house is a privilege. We have the right to shelter, but what that shelter looks like is very variable. So is, you know, it, is college a privilege or is it a privilege because it has been monetized in the system that we, in the economy that we operate in? Like, is it is it the actual thinking that's happening in college that is the privilege or is it the way in which the price tag in the United States has made it a privilege for people who can afford it? And some of these themes run throughout the book, and even the foreword uh, opens with it. It talks about um, some of the things that you've mentioned, that um, 
these programs do reduce recidivism, but that education is also about, quote, the development of individual people and the full expression of our common humanity. And when we see education that way, it's hard to it's hard to also see it as a privilege. That's right. I the the recidivism argument is one that is important because it, it it's a way of having data show a clear outcome even though the the you know statistical analysis around recidivism is actually quite complicated and I have co- colleagues that have written about this uh, much more eloquently than than I have but the, the for for many of us in this field we believe in college access not because of the impact on recidivism, but because of what you just read, what Lee Pelton writes in the foreword to the book, that that it, it is part of cultivating the mind and human potential that at its core is a worthwhile endeavor. One of the effects of access to college that is also beneficial for society is recidivism reduction, but that is not its the purpose of offering college in prison. It's in effect, but it's not the the driving reason for the program's existence. You referenced uh, Dr. Wendy Walters a few moments ago. In the book, she says, teaching in prison breaks down any false barriers between outside and inside of mass incarceration in this country. I sat with that for a bit, imagining what it's like for you all to go inside and outside back and forth as part of your work and your life. She, the space in the book where I took that quote right before it, she talks about being in her kitchen and trying to decide what's for dinner. And we can imagine her carrying her work with her mentally and emotionally the way that one does. And yet because of the nature of her work, it's bringing the readers into the idea that there is a very false divide of inside and outside. Do you want to talk about that grappling? For many of us that go back and forth from into the prison to teach and then back out to our daily lives outside, it is a constantly jarring experience because they are they are parallel universes that are entirely different and yet have many similarities you know we we walk into the classroom in the prison and we're we're teaching fellow human beings we're working with people who are interested in learning and who can uh, come into class happy or come into class grumpy. They can write a fluid essay or they can have writer's block. You know, they're, they, they sweat on hot days. They shiver on cold days. They're, they're humans. And, and I think we, as a, as a, program make a point to ask faculty and uh, tutors and and our administrators as well to really refrain from Googling our students. We want to treat them as college students and to not uh, interact with their conviction histories or what brought them to prison in the first place. There's only a few of us within the administration that we feel like need need to um, be aware of the, the details of someone's case beyond their ability as a student. Uh, But but we also recognize that that 
many of our students are people who have harmed other people and that we we want to not over idealize what it means to walk into the sacred space of the classroom and have that learning exchange that um, you know that in in some cases we're working with people that have caused incredible harm to others but that doesn't take away the driving impulse to cultivate human potential in any form. When we walk out of the prison as professors, we do so knowing that we are leaving our students behind, right? We're leaving them in a space where when they leave the classroom, they go back to being treated as prisoners, not as college students. And so when we are, as Wendy talks about, standing in our kitchens trying to decide what to have for dinner, or, you know, in my case, arguing with my children about me wanting them to clean up their rooms or clean up their dishes, those sorts of daily life experiences can feel really trivial in contrast to uh, what our students are having to navigate inside. But I think it's, I, I think that it places the primacy of human interaction in the classroom in such an important space, which is a space of dignified human interaction. So we can't, we can't change the policies that govern prison as a program, but we can create a dynamic in the classroom where just like on a traditional campus, we are working with students who are who are struggling with academic material and and producing great things. And we as faculty have to develop the self-care practices to allow ourselves to toggle back and forth between both worlds. One of the things you say in the book is that you wanted it to be reflective of these practices. And you talk about um, assigning a book to your students, uh, getting to yes. And, your students read it, and one of them said, this won't work here. And it created a very fruitful discussion. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. So, it, yes, I was I was serving as a, as a teaching assistant for a, a faculty member teaching a conflict and negotiation class. And the, the assigned texts are ones that are, are canonical in the field on the outside. But, but books like Bill Uri's Getting to Yes require uh, a kind of social contract between people that is very typical on the outside and looks very different in prison. You know, issues around vulnerability, vulnerability in prison are very sensitive. When someone shows vulnerability, the potential consequences of that in prison look quite different than they might on the outside. And so... One of the students in the in the book I talk about, one of the students looking through the book and quipping, yeah, this might be great on the outside, but it's it's not going to work here. Like we couldn't actually use this to negotiate conflict here. And I said, oh, well, maybe you need to write the book on what conflict negotiation in prison looks like. And he said, yeah, maybe I do. And he turned to his classmates and said, yeah, may- maybe we do. And it's those sorts of moments where students are able to claim their own their own knowledge and their own power as a resource that is so exciting as professors to get to see happen because he he recognized that there was a mistranslation of knowledge from one space to the other and that 
doing conflict negotiation in prison requires a different kind of intercultural competency than what Bill Uri is talking about and other authors in, in the field outside of prison are talking about. And then the student was able to recognize that he had the ability to define what it might look like for himself. And now in the college classroom, he has a structure for how to actually talk about it and write about it and explore that that personal knowledge base more fully. So it was really a beautiful moment for me to see him recognizing a, a unique skill set that he has that could be useful to others and that allows him to delineate, to categorize information and say, well, that book is great for learning about conflict negotiation outside of prison. And here's this other set of skills or information that we would need to translate that information into my social and cultural context. Student voices appear in different sections of the book and they are anonymous. And then there is one section that is written by a student. How did you, as the editor, make decisions about what voices could be named and what voices would uh, take the forefront? You you talk about being worried about positionality. So I know this was foremost on your mind as you were putting the book together. To a large extent, the decision about who could be named was was not actually my decision as editor, but it was a condition of publication by the Department of Correction. So um, everyone that contributed a chapter, uh, with the exception of the incarcerated student himself, is is someone that goes in to teach as uh, as faculty, as a volunteer within the Department of Correction. And as volunteers in the Department of Correction, we sign off on a media policy that requires any kind of public-facing work that we do uh, go through the Department of Correction communications team for, for vetting. And they have a very clear policy that they don't want students to be named. So we feel a lot of sadness around that because most of the students that we work with really want to be recognized for their words. But we also understand that the Department of Correction is balancing um, victim rights interests and wanting to uh, to maintain the kinds of uh, quarry based privacy rules that, that that they have set up to follow for themselves. So um, we the Alexander X did want his last name to be used and that per- permission for that was denied, but we were able to use his first name in the chapter that he wrote. And it in many of the faculty quotes, we decided to just make it universally anonymous to have uh, to have it be one policy throughout the book. But we, you know, we do feel a sense of sadness that our students who really want to claim their words and be recognized as authors in in their own right are are not granted that recognition. And you know, I think that's a, a larger policy discussion across the U.S. in terms of how we how we balance victims' rights with privacy concerns with. Uh, with allowing uh, incarcerated authors to to have their own words credited to their names. When we discuss an edited anthology, we want to be mindful of um, each chapter was written by a different author, and this is their work, and we don't want it to sound like we're crediting ourselves by stating their ideas. Um, in the case of the student who who is incarcerated and cannot appear on the podcast or share from their chapter. Would you uh, explain for listeners how that chapter came to be and a bit about it? Yes. First of all, let me just say that the group of contributors to this volume is a phenomenal group of people. And it was such a pleasure to work with each one of them. 
each of them are so dedicated to the work of teaching college and prison, and in Alexander's case, being a student in college and prison, that it was just an incredibly gratifying process. And I, you know, I've edited other things where I don't always feel that same sense of like, wow, this is the process itself of bringing this volume to light was so uh, fulfilling because I was, I felt like I was really able to accompany the contributors in the process of their own reflections and processing of these very powerful experiences that teaching in the Emerson Prison Initiative has granted them. For for Alexander X's paper, you know, it's it's been so many years. I I don't remember exactly. I think this I think this essay began as. Uh, a reflection piece that he had that he had drafted for one of his classes. And there was something, maybe it was in a class on autobiography or a memoir or something where he had, he had the basic content of this reflection. And I saw it because I, I review student work from time to time as the, as the program director and thought, wow, this is really something that, that explains the power of, this work. And just for for readers, for folks that haven't seen the book, Alexander's chapter is titled Learning to Live. And he uses this description of how in the beginning, he was uh, living to learn. And by the end of his contribution, he talks about learning to live. And so if I can, I just read a short excerpt from from his chapter. Yes, please read to us from Alexander X. So his chapter is titled Learning to Live. And in the introduction, he says, the pursuit of knowledge has sustained me throughout my incarceration. In an attempt to cope with the gravity of my prison sentence, I sought to educate myself. I spent hours in my cell rediscovering my love of books. However, the more I read, the more I began to feel cheated. I felt cheated by the public school system. I felt cheated by society but most of all, I felt cheated by myself. Realizing how much I didn't know about life, the world, and society stirred a desire for more knowledge. So he goes on to talk about how he was very involved in self-study for years before we ran admissions and admitted him into our program. And he also makes a, a parallel of being in his dorm room when he started as a freshman at a, at a college in Massachusetts prior to his conviction to then studying in his cell, you know, same cinder block walls, same, same big pen use it, he's using to, to scratch out uh, his notes, same hot pot and ramen noodle diet. So he talks about the similarities from when he was in college on the outside to being in college on the inside, and then goes into the many, you know, many differences. And he, he ends the chapter saying it's a unique experience to attend college in prison. Uh, and I've enjoyed and learned from each course I've taken, whether it was, it was expanding my creative writing abilities in a screenwriting course, or finally mastering dreaded math formulas in business mathematics, I've picked up skills that I can carry with me through life. This experience has broadened my understanding on many horizons as I went from the escapism of living to learn to the optimism of learning to live. And so he really talks about access to college as a process of learning how to live as fully as he can, even in the confines of an extremely long sentence. 
One of the sentences that he wrote that really stayed with me is on page 185, and he says, a prison sentence can feel like walking down a dark tunnel. And he goes on to say that um, a college education provides a light within that tunnel, a sense of direction. At the end of the book, you say one of the things that's really driving you in this work is optimism. And we see that in, in his chapter as well. It seems that that optimism is necessary for you to do this work, for all of the contributors um, to be doing this work. When I think about who is in prison, there are obviously extreme uh, racial and class implications of who is caught, who is sentenced, who is locked up. And when I, in my human rights class, I teach a section on the prison industrial complex and, and I, I sometimes will ask students, you know, take a moment and think about if you've ever done anything that has broken the law. And students will like look bemused and they'll look down and they'll smile or they'll, they'll giggle. And I'll say, but, but you're here. So you, you are not in prison for that thing that you did. You know, let's think about who is caught, who is sentenced, who serves time for the ways in which we break the law. And again, this is not to excuse the, some of the very serious crimes that are committed. Uh, and, you know, and, and our program is equal opportunity in terms of accepting people who have uh, loss of life crimes and other crimes. So, you know, there's a range of, a range of student backgrounds that, that my and other programs throughout the United States work with. But the, the fact is, many people break the law and only some people get caught. And so I, I think that college as a light at the end of the tunnel, as Alexander talks about, is connected to, for, the peop- for people who, who end up in prison, continuing to explore that human potential, continuing to find ways to live an active life of the mind is part of maintaining a sense of dignity. And some people may say, well, prison is there to, you know, to strip you of that. That's the point. It's punishment. But I think we need to go back and look at the the core mission of the of our prison systems. And we'll see that rehabilitation is in there. We'll see that, you know, there's nothing that inherently says there should be no dignity in the process of, of serving time. And so college should not be the only tunnel. And I say this, you know, we we need a lot of different kinds of interventions in the criminal legal system. What programs like mine do is one kind of intervention. It should not be the only kind of intervention uh, because there is tremendous human potential behind the wall. And we see that with some of our alumni that have come out, that have graduated with their degrees and they have come out of prison and they're doing incredible work in the world. And I'm glad that they have their college degrees and that they are now working at nonprofits, work, you know, working with at-risk youth, working in addressing racial and ethnic disparity in the criminal legal system. They're doing important work and they can do that work and have the kind of voice and the kind of jobs that they have because they, because they have college degrees. One of your alum is uh, John Yang, who provided a blurb for the back of the book, Uh, and says, the chapters reveal not only opportunities for higher learning, but pathways to change lives. 
John Yang has been just a, a stellar student, and he is going to complete his Emerson College degree with us on the Boston campus at the end of 2023. So uh, he started, did the first half basically of his degree with us in prison and then uh, was released and has been attending campuses on the Boston campus. He's also been working part-time for Emerson's Engagement Lab on a special initiative uh, looking at transforming narratives of gun violence. And for, for anyone that goes to the Emerson Prison Initiative's website, there's a short, like a four minute uh, video where John tells his own story. He co-wrote the script for this promotional video that's on our website, where he looks at what that transition has meant for him to go from being incarcerated to now being a student outside. And his life has been changed by access to college. I mean, and he he talks about it in the promo. He's talked about it in a range of public spaces. He was a speaker on our alumni panel at a big conference we just had on college and prison uh, at Emerson College. And so he he really testifies to the intervention that this made in his life. He in the video he talks about his parents were um, refugees from Laos and they were trying to figure out how to navigate the United States. They weren't they weren't able to help him navigate uh, middle school and high school. And so he you know he got into trouble. And what that what course that set him on was not the course that he wanted to be on, but but college was this lifeline that helped him figure out how he could actually change courses so dramatically. And he he has a minor in nonprofit management and went after graduation, he has really big dreams for himself of being able to continue to work in some sort of carceral legal system intervention capacity where his lived experience will be valued as a resource alongside the skill set of his college education. You describe this book as an anti-handbook handbook. Can you unpack what that means for us? <laughs> sure. So when when the director of the Brandeis University Press approached me about uh, about creating this book, we there was some talk of well, a, a handbook for for how to do college in prison would be really great. And I, you know, I I thought about it and thought about it, and I realized that I just felt so uncomfortable with the term handbook because there is no one way to do this work. Every state department of correction is going to have different requirements and rules that govern what colleges can do. Every college and university is going to have different rules and regulations about what faculty and administrators can do. And every individual faculty is going to have their own set of ethics and practices that also have to be reconciled across these two systems. So I recognize that within the college and prison world, handbooks are really useful. We have a handbook for our faculty to help prepare them for how to teach inside. We have a handbook for students for how to prepare for being students. We're in the process of building a reentry guide to have a, a handbook for returning citizens. So handbooks are great. They give us vital information, but but there is no one recipe. And we in the book, the contributors and I really wanted to look at these questions of power and how power operates both in the prison, but also what faculty bring back to traditional campuses regarding their own positionality as quote unquote experts, but also as learners. So how do we negotiate power across both prison campuses and traditional campuses? And 
to talk about power in a handbook makes it an anti-handbook in some regards. In addition to me saying there is no one way to do this, everyone's going to have to find their own way. Uh, also, this focus on power is like, I, we are not claiming that this is that we are experts and this is the way to do things. Rather, we're going to offer our reflections in a concise and readable way that will likely be useful for other people, but it is not a playbook or a rule book for how it should be done. We do hope that we're outlining best practices or practices that other programs can consider or aspire to as they're forming their own programs. Uh, but but it is such a heterogeneous universe and institutional across institutions that it's, it is very much an anti-handbook handbook. What do you hope listeners will take away? I understand that there is still tremendous resistance to providing college access to people who are incarcerated. It's a political issue it's one that's often shaped by a sense of if someone did something wrong, they should pay the price and not have privileges or perks connected to it. I hope that people take away an understanding that the way that we create a more just, equitable, and safer society is by opening up opportunities to historically and contemporarily marginalized people who have in many cases been denied those opportunities previously. So offering college and prison is an intervention in social hierarchy. And it's something that requires us to really look at the systems of privilege, of racial privilege, of class privilege, of educational privilege, and the intersectional way in which those privileges shape people's realities. You know, my, my own story as someone who navigated early college with an incarcerated parent, you know, I my my story could have looked really different. I could have gone a lot of different ways based on that. But I had access to a top shelf education, and that was a lifeline that took me in a very different direction than where I was in high school. And I think it's important to see that education serves as this tool of upward social mobility and by keeping it restricted to certain populations it's it's inherently excluding other people and when we bring college to prison we're not just bringing it for the students it's an intergenerational intervention so we hear stories all the time that our students are mentoring siblings or children or children or cousins nieces and nephews on the outside who themselves might be struggling whether it's to finish high school or to start college or to continue with college and and those family members are inspired like if my uncle father brother is able to do college while in prison, well, then I guess I can figure out how to get through it on the outside, right? So I, I want people to see that the benefits of extending college and prison to people incarcerated, yes, right now we think of it as a privilege, but in, pa- in fact, it's addressing unequal access to resources in society that is shaped by intergenerational legacies, legacies of racism, legacies of discrimination against black and brown people in this country. And that in order to create the, a world that 
I want my children to grow up in. We have to find ways to intervene. And this is one drop in the ocean. This is one concrete way in which we're able to intervene. And some programs are funded with tax dollars. Right now, my program is not. We rely on foundations and in, in individual donors to function. So we don't actually take tax uh, taxpayer money at this point. But for programs that do, arguably, that's a good use of taxpayer money because that person getting their college degree in prison is going to come out. They're going to be a taxpaying member of the workforce. They're going to be contributing to safe and healthy communities and and inspiring their family members and communities to uh, to do the same. So let's let's expand our definition of what uh, at what the right to education looks like and find a way to coexist better. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Manisha Gelman, and sharing with us education behind the wall, why and how we teach college in prison. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you're listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.